And now, a word from our sponsors. The Oyster Recovery Partnership is the nonprofit expert in Chesapeake Bay oyster restoration. Oyster Recovery Partnership has planted more than 9 billion oysters on 3,000 acres of reef and recycled more than 250 bushels of shell. Everyone benefits from a healthy Chesapeake Bay. Poor water quality and declining habitats can be reversed. Oysters are the answer. Pascavore is packaged in a convenient single-serving size with no refrigeration required until after opening. Pascavore is the perfect, healthy, and delicious snack for those on the go. Pascavore, tuna that travels. Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, your Oyster Ninja. And um, in case you can't tell by my voice, I'm a little raspy. I got that bug, got that bug. <laughs> um, but hopefully uh, it's not a big deal and you can uh, understand everything I'm saying. And I'm here today with Miss Michelle Grant. Uh, she's got a great wine bar um, here in, uh, that's on the Maryland side, right? Hey everybody, this is Michelle Grant, um, owner of Arrow Wine Bar in Mount Rainier, Maryland. And for anybody who doesn't know where that is or what that is, <laughs> Mount Rainier is a small city in between Hyattsville and Northeast D.C. So we're right off of Rhode Island Avenue and um, been open for just about a year now. We just celebrated our one year anniversary about two weeks ago. So how'd you even get into um, the wine world and like why... Why a raw man? Why a, a wine bar in uh, Mount Rainier? Yeah, good question. Um, I've always enjoyed entertaining. Uh, I did not grow up drinking wine. I didn't grow up around connoisseurs. Um, I I did grow up around a lot of different types of cuisine, and um, it wasn't really until my early thirties that I started taking wine a little bit more seriously. Uh, up until that point in my life, drinking was just whatever's there is what you drink, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I started experimenting with wine and what that did to food for me uh, in my early 30s. So after that and, and years of working in more corporate America, I spent probably about 20 years as a management consultant and also doing a lot of in, international kind of development work. I just kind of grew a little bored <laughs> and I think I needed um, more outlets for my own creativity. So I, I put together a plan. I didn't know, you know, what was going to come of it or if it was ever going to happen, but I put together a plan and fast forward maybe about five to seven years from the first time I wrote that plan, I found a place that um, was affordable, but added something new to the community that I decided to move to right outside of D.C. And that's um, how, we, how we got started. I also met my husband around the same time, and he was a big key influencer in terms of Mount Rainier. As you know, I mean, you've grown up in the area, so you know that there's tons of wine bars and places to hang out in D.C. And um, even though D.C. was my initial kind of thought, we figured why not step a little bit out of D.C. and um, kind of, you know, be something new and interesting and not be in an oversaturated location. So that's how we stumbled upon Mount Rainier. Like, what do you think 
what what was your obstacle? But once you got through it, it was like, oh, that wasn't even that bad. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I'd say a couple of things. The first would be, uh, you know, when I first started out, like I said, I didn't grow up around sommeliers. I didn't grow up around connoisseurs. I I didn't grow up having a deep knowledge of wine. So um, the whole world at first to me was a little intimidating. I, I have a lot of experience studying and doing research. I have a PhD. <laughs> I spend a lot of time researching other things. Um, but the world of wine is intimidating in the sense that um, the people who work in the local sort of restaurant and bar industry, sometimes it can be a tight-knit community. Sometimes it can feel a little bit exclusive. Um, and there's also just from a technical standpoint, so much to know, right? There's hundreds of thousands of different types of wines out there. So when I first started studying wine um, and, and, and thinking about how to add some structure to my study, it was daunting, um, but I, I went ahead and I pursued the whole Court of Master Sommeliers training track and got a, a certified sommelier diploma after probably about two years of study. So did it feel after I did it like, oh, that wasn't so bad? No. <laughs> It still, it still, it felt like a feat. It felt like quite a feat. But after I had put in that work to do the study and to just go to events, go to events, do tastings, meet people, you know, put myself in awkward and uncomfortable situations. <laughs> after I did that, I felt a little bit more confident. So I definitely say the wine world um, part of it. And then also just the sacrifice and the risk that you take, right? Like, you have a day job. I have, I have day jobs. I had a day job before ERA. And um, there's this real fear associated with, okay, if I leave this and I just do wine full time or open a bar full time, is it really going to create the returns that I want for myself? Am I going to have to sacrifice other parts, you know, of my life? And the answer to both of those questions is yes, you know? Um, so it's been a really, really interesting journey but those I'd say were the, the top two things that were tough for me. I really think that uh, people underestimate um, putting themselves in those un, un, um, uncomfortable positions um, because once you get uncomfortable it's like what they say uh, flight or fight and entrepreneurs whether they know it or not all of them every single one are fighters and if people would just take that jump I think, um, you know, it would, it would, they would really be surprised. What I liked about your wine bar when I came in is the staff was like really knowledgeable. So your wine bar is really approachable for the beginner person or for the high end person, you know, one is really knowledgeable. Um, but I like that I don't know anything about wine. So I can ask your staff, hey, well, what about this? Or what do you mean by that? And they're really so knowledgeable that they can break down those lefts, you know, those uh, those wines, those uh, different tastes and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so just tell me like that, your idea about uh, ERA, like where you, what you wanted it to be and what it actually is now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so happy to hear you say what you just said about it being approachable because first and foremost, that was, that was the number one thing that we wanted in terms of the concept. Um, 
And I know this because, like I said, I've been in those uncomfortable situations. I've been in, in restaurants and things like that where I had no idea how to navigate a menu. And it's been intimidating, you know. Um, sometimes, depending on where you go, there's an attitude of stuffiness that kind of comes with the whole wine culture. Some people think it's cool. Um, I joined the world a little bit later in my life to where I kind of know who I am and that's not me, <laughs> you know, um, no disrespect, but it's just not me. So um, what we wanted to do was open a place that was, like you said, approachable. Secondly, that celebrated diversity in wine. And when I say diversity in wine, I don't just mean women winemakers or black winemakers or whatever. I mean, really honoring the, the origins of wine and where it comes from, you know, um, and that's so much more vast than Europe and so much more vast than France or Germany or Spain or whatever. So um, we knew we wanted it to be eclectic and we knew that we wanted our staff to really reflect that as well. Now, don't get me wrong. It is very difficult to find staff of any kind right now in this environment, but we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into training, into encouraging people to develop their own vocabulary around wine. I mean, you've probably seen some of this or heard some of this where people talk about this wine tastes like wet rocks or this wine tastes like a brick wall or whatever. <laughs> and we get lots of people who come in and they join our staff and they're like, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I've never tasted a brick wall. And, and we're okay with that, right? Um, we want you to be able to connect with customers in a way that's real to them. So that's a huge part of, of the concept is the diversity, the approachability. Um, and, and also we're a neighborhood place. Remember, like I said earlier, we're in Mount Rainier. So in this neighborhood where we live, by the way, we got new families with little babies. We got people who have been here for 30, 40 years and they need to take their grandma out for a glass of Chardonnay, which is her favorite thing. Um, we got, you know, ladies who are looking for a ladies night out type of place. Um, we have PG County officials that are looking for places to meet that um, have a casual but upscale and, and professional vibe. So we were challenged with creating a space that would welcome all these different customer segments. And I'm happy to see it kind of come together. Oh, I definitely say you succeeded with that. Um, and even just walking around the bar, you know, the uh, aesthetics are, you know, it's just beautiful. It's, it's well-rounded. And of course, uh, well, I guess let's jump into it. So we're, we're planning on doing, or you, you go ahead and explain. Uh, the event. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Event? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So um, to, to really honor this idea of community in wine, there are a bunch of different things that we do outside of just full service, you know, food and wine. So we have basically three different types of, of membership, right? We have two tiers to a, a membership that's really focused on your experience when you walk in the door. So discounts every time you, you sit down to have a drink or grab a bite, um, discounts on renting our private event space downstairs for your business meetings, your birthday dinners or whatever. Um, and then also access to and discounts on special events that we do with the wine community. So we bring winemakers in, we do tastings, we do classes on how to pair different foods with wines, et cetera, et cetera. So those um, 
you know, two tiers of that program are what we call our crew and grand crew. Those are there. We also just recently instituted another program that is very product focused. So let's say you don't have the time or, you know, you're not really past the whole COVID situation and you don't want to dine out much. We have a partnership with a company called Table 22, and they specialize in bringing subscriptions from restaurants and, and wine bars to the public. And via that program, you can basically get, you know, two to four bottles from us a month at a set, you know, price. And of course, we curate them and we make notes, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway. Those are the three sort of membership options. And what we're doing, and I'm really excited to have you with us, what we're doing in the first week of December is our annual holiday reception with our in-person, our crew of grand crew members. And um, instead of, you know, the classic kind of holiday party where everybody just comes and stands around and all, we're going to create a real experience for our members by having different stations that's part of the reception that allow them to learn while they're eating and drinking and just kind of have a good time. So um, what you are going to bring are, is your delicious shucking, <laughs> your delicious shucking uh, experience to Arrowine Bar, and people are going to be able to taste a variety of oysters with wines to match. So that's coming up. Really exciting. So not to give it all away, um, but how do you, when you think of pairing um, oysters and wine, wh what, are, what are your first thoughts? Like not even a particular type, but just like going through that process. Yeah, good question. And I'm, I'm glad that you're asking me this because I'll be honest with you, up until about five years ago, you couldn't get me to eat an oyster. <laughs> So, I mean, I've come a whole long way. All right, we won't tell um, nobody else. We won't no, we won't tell nobody else. But now that I'm in it um, and I'm learning more, uh, what I think about in terms of just being a food and wine person and having this responsibility of designing menus that are palatable to a lot of different people, but also special and unique, what I think about are words like salinity, salt, what I think about are words like palate cleansing, right? Um, what I think about oysters, I think of them as a, a light indulgence, okay? But they're kind of, uh, you know, you can go in, you can go hard, you can have a bunch, or you can have a few, you can share with people, you can put different things on them. So what I think about are the core flavors of the oyster itself, level of brininess, salinity, all of that good stuff. And then I think about what dressings people might or might not be putting on them. I've seen all kinds of things done with oysters. So I'm really excited to maybe go through a couple different types and then think about what kinds of wine are going to help accentuate that experience with the oyster, but also make you want more, right? Make you kind of cleanse your palate and want a little bit something more. So those are my first thoughts, uh, but I'm really excited to, you know, get your guidance on the types of oysters that we're going to select from, you know, what we have available and then pair the wines accordingly. Perfect. Perfect. What took you so long? What so was like the, oysters? What was the biggest block to get you into oysters? Honestly, it was a, it was a cultural barrier for me. I, um, I didn't grow up eating anything raw, okay? So my, my parents 
are immigrants to this country. My father is Zambian, Black Zambian, and my mother's Indian, but she was born and raised in Zambia as well. And um, growing up, if we had any sort of seafood, it was cooked to a crisp, okay? <laughs> if we had steak, it was so well done. I mean, you could literally throw it on the floor and kick it around. That's how hard it was. So I never, never was exposed to oysters in a way that made me kind of excited and intrigued. And I would probably say about five or six years ago, again, taking it back to my husband because he loves oysters and he'll order them first thing, wherever we go, if they have them, can I, what kind of oysters do you have? What's the difference between this one and that one? And um, Where's this one from? It was with him that I tried my first oyster. Uh, and, and I thought to myself, wow, okay. I think I, okay, I'll confess. I put a lot of different things on it, okay? Okay. I put the pickled. Baby steps, <laughs> like baby steps. Yeah, I put the pickled stuff on there. I got some Tabasco on there. And I was like, no, you got to put more. You got to put more because I was so scared. But I think I was scared of the texture. It wasn't the taste. It was the texture. It was just getting used to this. What what I thought at first was a sliminess, but now I feel like it's sort of like a, almost like a sexy, I don't know how to describe it, sexy sort of. No, it, it's, it, it's, I would say like a sexy body. It's, it's the right. body. It's the, I mean, just like, uh, you know, the body of the wine, it's the body of the oyster. And, uh, you know, being able to, because again, I was the same way, honestly. Uh, it took me a while to start eating oysters, but I was like, I had to embrace it, really. I had to embrace the texture, embrace the flavors, and really kind of realize that it wasn't just the oyster that I'm eating. You know, it's a lot of labor that I'm eating. It's a lot of love that I'm eating. Um, so it was, it was a lot behind just, it's not just an oyster. But, you know, that's, that's the drug I'm on now. It's my drug of choice. <laughs> How long have you been on this drug? I need to know because I, I mean I've seen what you do and I've seen the amount, the volume <laughs> that you can consume. When did it start for you? Um, so my first experience was not a good one. Um, oysters made me sick for a long time, and it was really not because of the oyster, but it was really because of my weak stomach. Um, so. <clears throat> Pickled onions changed my life. So basically when mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, the, so the pickled onions, um, basically I was I, I used to shuck with uh, Nick and Patrick of the local oyster up in Baltimore. And they had this Baltimore style onions. I mean, mignonette. Big onions, pickled. And I was like, yo, okay, let me try this. And I tried it and I was just hooked. I started putting, putting the pickled onions on everything, you know? And um <laughs> And then from there, um, just trying like, or really realizing that every oyster was different. So mm. a oyster I get from Virginia is not the same I'm gonna get from Maryland. Or even if it's two oysters from Virginia, they can be in different locations and they're gonna taste different. So I always like being different. So my thing, I, I wanna <laughs> try to taste the differences, you know? So yeah. really, it's, it's really just a challenge to me to not put anything on the oysters and the taste of oysters for what they are. 
Is that for like, a beginner like me, is that what you would suggest? Because I feel like I'm never going to be able to distinguish. I, I mean, maybe if there are big differences, but in general, you would suggest don't put all that stuff on there if you really want to get the essence. Oh, right? for sure, for sure. Yeah. So um, this past weekend, we uh, did the oyster ride at Old Evan. And um, really, that's what I'm looking forward to doing at your uh, wine bar. It's really out. There are some nine oyster lovers, and it's always my goal to convert people. Like I love converting people to oyster lovers, or at least oyster likers. <laughs> That's a big step. It is. It's a big. It's a big step. And I think it's um in the wine world. I can say with confidence now that I've been in these circles and I've been to a lot of these places and seen it happen. Um, it's an interesting pairing challenge, right? Sommeliers and wine people, they always like to do, you know, figure out what goes with what or whatever. Um, but it's such an interesting challenge because they can be delicate, but also very strong in flavor at the same time. And um, they go with pretty much all occasions. I remember asking you a couple weeks ago, like, can you tell me about seasonality? Will there be certain types available by the time we have the party or not? And I've already learned so much from you, even just a couple of conversations, you know, that about how, how they grow and availability and things like that. So definitely um, just how your, uh, you know, your staff is like on top of everything. You know, that's also, um, in my opinion, part of being a good oyster shucker and a good uh, steward of the ocean um, to be able to have those conversations and to break barriers down and break walls down. And I was wondering, just like when I was going through, excuse me for my shortness of breath, but um, okay. I, was, I was wondering like the way I describe oysters or the way I can get lost in oysters, is it the same way for you with wine? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely, hands down. Um, and I find myself doing that all the time. You know, there, for example, last week, you know, we have a Thanksgiving three pack, right? That's available for you to purchase. And there are three wines in two different tiers. So six wines that I selected as very food friendly with like your classic Thanksgiving dishes. And I remember one staff member and I said, let me, guys, let me know if you need notes or anything so that you could help customers understand kind of what these wines are. And one of our staff members said, yeah, yeah, I'd love the notes. And I texted these notes, Gardner, and I was like, I can't believe I just texted all of that. It's a lot. <laughs> she probably doesn't need all of that. She probably have three words. You know, because if you ask me about the wine, I'm going to tell you where it's from. I'm going to tell you the history of the family that might own that vineyard or the winery. I'm going to tell you about how the acidity impacts the flavors of the food that's on our menu. I'm going to tell you about my top recommendations for the food that's on our menu with each of the wines. Um, if there are other fun facts that I think will appeal to customers, I try to throw those in too. A lot of people are big nowadays on biodynamic or organic or female winemaker or black owned or um, no finding or filtering, you know, there's all kinds of things. So you can really go in. And I think, um, you know, of course, there's a time and place for that. And you have to also gauge when you're in that customer interaction. If they don't want to hear it, 
you got to know how to cut it off and be like, this wine is delicious. Would you like a glass? Leave it. You know, um, there are other customers who get really into it and they want that story. So my, I, I err on the side of giving as much information as I can to my team and then trusting them to have the etiquette and emotional intelligence to really vibe with the customer and give them what they're looking for. Why is like knowing the families so important or like how old the vines are and all that good stuff? The reasons why it's important for me are different than the reasons why a customer might care. There are, I will say, I will say with confidence that today's wine consumer is about 10 times more savvy and conscious uh, about what they drink than they were 10, 15 years ago. So as a business owner who wants to be taken seriously, it's important for me to have that information in case they want it because that information is actually driving their decision-making. There are some people who only want to consume wine that's made by what we call small producers, um, people who have not been bought out by these giant conglomerate companies that are increasingly using more additives and manipulating the process of winemaking so that they can focus on volume as opposed to quality. So you have a more savvy consumer. Um, for me personally, it's important because just like how you come into Arrow Wine Bar and you think to yourself, I'm supporting Michelle. I'm also buying what I think is hopefully a great product, but I'm supporting Michelle on her entrepreneurial journey or whatever. I'm a wine buyer, so I'm going through that same exercise every time I select a wine that's going to go on our menu. And I want to know, if that wine was made in South Africa, are they supporting um, positive labor conditions for people that are picking grapes? Um, are they supporting, you know, other causes that, I would say promote environmental sustainability or um, encourage diversity or equity in the way they run their business. Um, those things are important for me and they make a good story for the wine itself. Um, I think a lot of people also, they get, you, you get attached to people and you get attached to story and you make connections to story as opposed to product. So if you can come in and I, if I can tell you, hey, this wine from, I don't know, this wine from this tiny island in Italy is only made in, you know, 50 cases a year, and we only get six bottles a year or whatever. Everybody wants to feel like they're a part of something. So it helps me, and it helps you. You know what? That was a great answer. That was a great answer. <laughs> so let's, let's go back to the bar a little bit, um, day one. Uh, what kind of obstacles were there? Um, first of all, like we talked about the build out, um, finances, um, all the, all of that good stuff. Like the things I guess yeah. we think about and things we don't think about. Yeah. Um, I underestimated a couple of things. The first was the financing. 
I had saved, you know, I had saved for probably a good four or five years from my day job and thought that I had enough money <laughs> to kind of come into a place and, you know, throw it together and, you know, sort of shabby chic. <laughs> um, underestimating build out and construction costs can be detrimental to any new business owner. We, we get so focused on the concept and the design that we forget about, oh, shoot, what if we have to install another gas line to get a stove to work? What if we don't have enough plumbing access for toilets that we need? Um, we, my husband and I, were very ambitious in that instead of moving into a place that had formerly been used as a restaurant or bar, we moved into what is called a cold, dark shell. I think I told you this when you came into ERA. We didn't, there was no HVAC in there. There was no plumbing. There was no electricity. So we really built the thing from scratch and it required not just a lot more money than I thought was needed, um, but also a lot of oversight, you know? Um, we got to a point during the build out, which took a year, by the way, we got to a point where we realized that both of us had to quit our day jobs in order to just manage everything that was going on. Um, my husband is better at dealing with contractors than I am, but we, re we learned very quickly that being there, just being there, being able to make decisions on the fly, being able to source materials for cheaper prices, things like that, saved us a ton time and, and of money. So. I definitely, that's a big one. And I think if, if there are people out there that are looking to start their own thing or that want to open a brick and mortar based on whatever their concept is, think about all of the options available to you. You know, think about what you might save by moving into a second generation space that already has nuts and bolts. Um, think about how investing in new construction might set you back on your grand opening costs and the timelines associated with that. Um, yeah, I think those are those are big. Those are big. So those were big obstacles. Licenses and permits were not as big of an obstacle as I thought they would be. Um, PG County and Mount Rainier were very instrumental in helping us to get where we wanted to be. Of course, you have to stay on it. Um, but I think that that compared to the construction piece was was actually not that bad. So I've uh, heard like of of oyster farmers, you know, when they're, when they're starting their uh, farm and even later on, once they've had it three or four years, you know, starting to get on boards and things to kind of help the process for the next person coming, coming up. Um, I got two questions. One is looking back, um, what would you do different? And two, going forward, like what are your goals for the bar? Looking back, I would explore the possibility of purchasing, waiting a little longer to purchase the real estate. Of course, everybody wants to own the real estate. You don't want to be a tenant in anybody's anything, okay? But um, at that time, we thought, you know, it's still better for us to, um, if we need to take out some business loans, that's fine, but it's still better for us to start out renting because the risk is lower. Um, I still now in hindsight, 
considering what we spent, the time that was invested, and um, the restrictions that are put on any commercial tenant in a in a in a rental situation. I think um, investing in the real estate, finding ways to invest in the real estate first, might be helpful. Um, that way, you can kind of move. I mean, you can move at your own pace, but you can't because you a more you have a mortgage. That's the flip side of a rent, you know. But I think think um, considering those costs a little bit more and possibly um, finding situations where you can own something, even if it's really small, um, it's always better than entering into a, a, a tenant relationship. And not that ours is bad; like we have a good relationship with our landlord, and it's fine. Um, but when we, when I think about what we invest into that space, it really does feel like home to us. But at the end of 10 years, we either have to go <laughs> or renew the lease. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, right? They, they look at, oh, we're closing this year or we're no longer open or whatever. And they just think, oh, they're going out of business because they didn't make money or whatever it is. But sometimes relationships with landlords just terminate naturally. Um, and that's why a lot of businesses end up relocating or whatever. Um, your second question was the future of the wine bar, right? Right. Wow. I would love to continue expanding our reach um, to the DM throughout the DMV. We've only been open for a year, and it's awesome because we have some repeat customers and folks that are like family now, which is really nice. We got. 20-something-plus members in less than a year, which is awesome. Um, I'd like to continue expanding our reach. I would like to uh, possibly explore another location or two. Um, yeah, I think our programming is solid. I think that I like providing a well-rounded experience beyond just the eating and drinking place. Um, and I'd like to see more of our team kind of continue to appreciate and grow into their own wine, you know, maybe careers or to see other people just kind of soar and excel at whatever it is that they're, they're interested in. It's nice to be in a position where I can dedicate that time now um, to mentoring and things like that in a way that I couldn't before. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um... I'm looking forward to our uh, holiday event and really uh, introducing some people to some oysters and wine and uh, just a good time, really. So uh, it's be awesome. it is, it is for the listeners. Um, I guess, you know, if you want to give them a rundown on where they can find you, um, it, newsletters, whatever else you want to spread. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously we've got our website, arrowwinebar.com. Arrow Wine Bar is also our Instagram and Facebook handle, so you can find us there. Um, I would say the best way to keep in touch with us and especially to keep up to date on all the events that we have going on would be to go to our website, www.arrowwinebar.com, and subscribe to our newsletter via the Contact Us uh, link. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you're going to see our sales, our promotions, everything that we have with winemakers coming up. Um, that's the best way to really keep in touch with us. Um, otherwise, business hours, we're open Wednesday through Sunday. We're open at 4 o'clock uh, Wednesday through Saturday, and then at 12 noon for brunch on Sunday. 
And yeah, we hope that everybody will come by, have a drink, have a bite, have a good time with us. Boom. And thank you for your time and thank you for your wisdom and knowledge and all of that good stuff. And I, I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you. Look, we made it. We made it. Your cold, my cold. We made it <laughs> just in time for the holidays. Right. And I love it. Thank you so much for having me. And now, a word from my sponsors. My name's Matt Owens, and I'm the founder and CEO of Healthy Ocean Seafood Company, the owner of the Pescavore brand. For the last five years, six years now, actually, I've been the sustainability director at Trimarine, which is a, a global tuna supplier. Uh, we're down here at San Pedro right now at a Trimarine facility. And so for the last several years, I've been working to uh, effectively manage tuna resources all around the world. So we have these great sustainable fisheries in the U.S., but most of that gets exported, a lot of times processed overseas, then imported back into the United States. We have a huge seafood trade deficit. And I wanted to find a way in which I could add value to the resource in, here on the West Coast and bring it to market here on the West Coast. And so that's really how Pescavore started. And so to take a West Coast caught tuna and process it into something that's different, something that's delicious, something that's convenient, something that's healthy, and something that's sustainable. And that's what the Pescavore brand is all about. It's making seafood snackable, it's taking sustainable tuna, and it's, it's bringing it into the snack space so that it's convenient for people. You can eat it anywhere, it's delicious, it's good for you, and importantly, you can feel good about it. You're supporting local fishermen, you're supporting a sustainable fishery that's well-managed.